You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, good evening and, and welcome. My name is Sarah Kerr and I'm delighted to welcome you here to tonight's panel discussion, Developing Dublin. I extend my welcome to all of you here in the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute and to those of you watching us online. Tonight's panel discussion is part of a lecture series organised by Dr Tom Walker in the School of English and Dr Daniel Fass in the Department of Sociology and myself here in Trinity. And it is supported by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute, to whom we're very thankful. The lecture series is called Trinity and the Changing City and through six sessions over the course of the academic year covering a variety of topics, we will explore Dublin's past, its development into the city it is today and indeed its future. Our motivation for this lecture series is to address our representative gap and by that I mean a gap between the real city in which Trinity resides with its diversity, languages, social class and race and the narratives within broader culture that the city puts forth. And the city and the, the session this evening aims to address this gap by bringing together Trinity's staff and stakeholders within the city. The topic of developing Dublin will be explored through a discussion on some of the major developments taking place within the city. And I suppose the juxtaposition of those against the many vacant buildings which remain, all of which is set within a context of a city historically rich creatively and, and in culture. So we have three speakers this evening. Each will deliver their presentation, after which I will open the floor um, for questions. So please jot down your questions during the talk and save them for the Q&A at the end. So I'll now introduce all three speakers so we can get stuck into to the discussion. Our first speaker this evening is Dr. Melanie Hayes. Dr. Hayes is an architectural and cultural historian in the Department of History and Art and Architecture here at Trinity. Melanie's research focuses on Ireland's 18th century architectural and social history, specifically Dublin's early Georgian domestic architecture, which resulted in her involvement with the conservation project 14 Henrietta Street as a historical consultant. And we actually explored that topic in the first session of this lecture series. We're delighted that Melanie's here this evening. Our second speaker is Mr. Ger Casey. Ger is an architect with over 20 years experience he was a key member of the design team that developed the award-winning master plan for the Grange Gorman Urban Quarter. He has since been working for the Grange Gorman Development Agency to help implement the master plan vision, fulfilling several different senior roles within the GDA, the most recent of which being his current position as Chief Executive Officer. Our third and final speaker this evening will be Dr. Kane O'Callaghan. Dr. O'Callaghan is an urban and cultural geographer in the Department of Geography at Trinity. His recent research has focused on the impacts of Ireland's property crash on the built environment and society and on the transformations taking place post, in the post-crisis city, particularly in relation to the meaning and use of vacant spaces. So you're all incredibly welcome here this evening and I now invite Dr Hayes to give her a talk. by looking back um, and thinking about the development of Dublin's um, premier Georgian street, or residential street, um, now O'Connell Street. Uh, once Dublin's premier residential street, O'Connell Street Upper, uh, formerly Sackville Street Upper and Gardner's Mall, stands as a testament to the cyclical fortunes of the city's architectural heritage. A series of booms and busts of changing functions, occupancy and vacancy have all left their mark on the historic fabric of the city. This evening I'm going to speak briefly about the original development in the mid-18th century before plotting the changing use destruction and decline of Dublin's principal thoroughfare. 
Built in the boom times of the 1750s, Sackville Street Upper was a pioneering example of high-class domestic development. The man responsible for this ambitious endeavour was a property tycoon by the name of Luke Gardner. He was a high-ranking government official, politician, private banker, and over the course of his long career, Gardner amassed a large property portfolio um, in Dublin City and beyond. Having bought up vast swaths of land on the north side of the River Liffey uh, in the 1720s, this land once belonged to St Mary's Abbey uh, and later to the Earls of Drogheda. Gardner's own speculative enterprises, which included the exclusive residential development of Henrietta Street um, and those of his descendants, would change the face of the North Georgian city forever. Cavendish Row. Cavendish Row and Granby Rose, Gardner and Blessington Street, and the intended flagship of their enterprise, Mountjoy Joy Square, all immortalise the Gardner family name still today. Returning to Sackville Street, uh, development began here about 1748-1749, and this was a time of increased prosperity. Uh, following a decade of war abroad and famine, and hardship at home. At this time, interest rates were unusually low. And demand for upper-class housing was on the rise. Works here at Sackville Mall coincided with smaller-scale developments in the vicinity, Marlborough Street, Moore Street, and Great Britain Street, or Parnell Street today. Sackville Street was to be the jewel in the crown, setting new standards in the city's urban planning. You see here a vast boulevard stretching a massive 1,050 feet in length and 150 feet wide, lined on both sides with these lofty terraced houses and an elegant mall or walking place laid down the centre. This was of a scale and sophistication unprecedented in the Georgian city, even rare at this time in London. It would not have been out of place in the imperial capitals of Europe in the later century to come. You can see here in this map of 1756 the broad open aspect of the street and it would have stood in stark contrast to the cramped conditions of the old city on the other side of the river. Sackville Street and Mall became a focal point and indeed the impetus for subsequent development in the northeast quadrant of the city. But before any building works could commence, uh, major site clearance had to take place. Demolition of earlier structures around the end of what was then Drogheda Street and Earl Street. Um, and still at the mid-century, um, Drogheda Street closed off the end of Sackville Street to the river. In the 18th century, even the removal of debris and building waste was a very costly affair. And the provision of services, most of which uh, Gardner left for future residents to pay and petition for, um, um, as well as paving um, and landscaping had to all be considered. Gardner was a seasoned developer, and instead of footing the bill for this entire development, he parceled out smaller lots of ground, um, many of which he sublet to building tradesmen, craftsmen, um, at very favourable rates. Um, he often left them at a nominal peppercorn of a rent for a set building term. And these tradesmen in turn carried out the building works thereon before selling the houses, or the new built houses, onto their wealthy residents. In other instances, Gardner kept control of construction here, contracting architects and builders himself, and even granting mortgage finance to, to prospective tenants as a means of encouraging speedy development, ensuring the right caliber of residents, um, who he insured lease of these new built properties at the highest rates the market would bear. The resulting houses, with their plain red brick facades, punctuated by evenly set back windows, parapet roofs above, rather sombre stone door cases below, and railed in areas before the basements at street level, lent an air of sophistication, of uniformity to the scheme in line with prescribed Georgian ideals. We have to allow here, however, for an element of artistic license um, to the homogeneity seen in Grace's view of about 1752. Many of the buildings here at that time were still under construction, 
as I say, some of this must be his imaginings. Um, but concrete evidence of the external treatment of the original uh, Sackville Street is very thin on the ground. A rare single reference survives in a lease um, of May 1750 between Luke Gardner and the Reverend Edward Bailey, um, wherein Gardner agreed to build walls or a shell of a building um, of good and sound and merchantable honey brick. So not the red brick we'd expect to see, suggesting there was an element of variety of colour of materials, but that's all we can really determine aside from this artist impression. We know that there was variety in terms of scale, um, from a broad 60 feet, feet frontage um, at this corner plot number 9 and 10 uh, Sackville Street, um, the residence and adjoining Canton House of Alderman Richard Dawson, a banker. And from that broad site to a much more modest proportions of number 20 at the Reverend Bailey's house of only 27 feet to the street in front. Similar to their scale, although these houses presented a very uh, similar face to the street, internally there was much variety uh, in terms of their layout and in terms of their decoration. Um, and I apologise for these images, but this is all that remains. This is the only evidence we have of these interiors uh, taken in the early years of the 20th century. Um, but we can tell from the surviving evidence that there were some exceptional examples, particularly on the east side of the street. Um, here showing Drogheda House, um, where some of the 18th century schemes, the original schemes in this house, survived right into the 20th century. Another important example, at number 15, um, also on the east side of the street, um, 15 and 16, a pair of houses built for Robert Hancock. Um, the design of these two houses and of several of the other early houses on the street are attributed to Richard Castle the leading architect of the day. Castle had close connections both with Gardner and with his protégé um, and co-developer, Nathaniel Clements. And he was also connected with many of the notable residents and individuals of this street. Castle died in 1751, and after this time, works would have been carried out by his right-hand man, his lieutenant, John Enser. Many of the other houses which were of equal scale um, and internal pretension, were speculatively built affairs by local tradesmen, the Darleys, the Balls, the Buckleys, and Stuart. Uh, form, these men formed so-called building knots, operating a sort of quid pro quo system, um, constructing a number of houses on the west side and lending each other's services in um, alternate projects. All of the houses, both bespoke or speculative builds alike, um, were elegant domestic spaces, and they all served a variety, an array of functions, practical and symbolic. There were family dwellings, and there were places for entertainment, from large-scale social gatherings to more pl uh, intimate political interludes, where overt displays of luxury and opulence were the order of the day. And these spoke volumes about the status and the sophisticated taste of their occupants. As well as the houses, the mall, um, or walking place, which was a sort of elongated urban square where lent an air of grandeur to this scheme. It derives its name from the game of mal or croquet, and it was created, and I quote you from a lease at the time, for the use and pleasure and accommodation of the tenants and inhabitants of these houses also their servants and followers, and any other persons who think fit to pass and repass through the same. So, essentially, a public space, but we can see here, walled in, slightly separate. Um, it was a place of promenade, of public resort for elites to be seen in the centre of the city. Um, we can see here um, that Gardner, in creating the Mall, drew on the latest fashions from Britain and the continent. Um, the mall was originally walled in, enclosed in these low stone walls, topped or capped with cut stone and dotted around its perimeter with lamps and these obelisks. Um, examples of the latter still survive in the rotund gardens just up at the north of this street. Um, so very elegant and sophisticated, drawing on British and continental European models. The mall was later 
planted with trees, gravel walks, and surrounded by handsome iron railings. These were removed in the 19th century, um, while many different statues have uh, inhabited this spot over the centuries, the first being Van Nost's William Blakeney. An elegant fountain also stood at the north of the Mall, um, uh, and also removed in the early 19th century because of issues with ice and slipping, public safety uh, in the early 19th century. In a covenant or an agreement made between Luke Gardner and William Charlton Whitlock in 1755, it was laid down or agreed that this mall, the said ground, shall forever and hereafter remain a mall or walking place and shall ever remain free and open and continue unbuilt upon for no other intent or purpose whatsoever. And though its original appearance has changed over the centuries, the outline of Gardner's Mall can still be felt in our modern streetscape. This street was described in 1787 as the best and most spacious street in Dublin, inhabited chiefly by the nobility of the kingdom. And Sackville Street certainly boasted a range of elite entitled residents, from the Dowager Countess uh, Neverville to Viscount Lifford, the Lord Chancellor of Ireland. But even at the outset, there was an element of mixed use on uh, Sackville Street, with a gravel pit belonging to one John McGill, a.k.a. Buttermilk Jack, um, and he owned this gravel pit on the west side of the street up until six, uh, 1767 uh, when three houses were built on it by the stonemason George Diarly. So to say we can see mixed use right from the outset. Moving on to the 19th century, we start to see even more variety and change in terms of use. Following the Act of Union and the subsequent exodus of MPs and peers from the city, Dublin's principal thoroughfare was occupied by a growing um, professional class. This had already begun to infiltrate this exclusive enclave even at the end of the century. A more commercial uh, air emerged, similar to the lower half of the street, which had been built in 1784, and according to the historian Maris Craig, vulgarised the exclusive tenor of the mall. By now, it had become the city's premier commercial street. In 1805, there were some 40 businesses listed at Sackville Street. Many of the original houses were then subdivided or not true uh, uses clubhouses, such as the Sackville Club, um, or the Catholic Commercial Club on the west side of the street. They were also used as hotels and distilleries, such as the Gresham and the Waterford Hotels, and later, the Hammonds Hotel, or Hammonds Family Hotel and Turkish Baths. Um, and this um, part of this hotel stood on the site of where Col um, Colonel Owen Wynne's house once stood in the uh, middle of the 18th century. Externally uh, and internally, many of these Georgian homes were altered and adapted to suit these new uses um, and changing tastes. Alderman Dawson's house, probably the finest house on the street, um, was subdivided into two um, in the 1820s and occupied by William Curry's booksellers and publishers uh, before it was taken down and rebuilt entirely um, in 1867 by the Scottish Provident Insurance Company. On a whirlwind of time, um, the 20th century saw even more drastic change at O'Connell Street, with damage and destruction of many of the original buildings, um, which were caught in the line of fire, firstly during the 1916 rebellion, uh, and even more so during the Civil War in uh, June of 1922, when rebel forces occupied the buildings um, and were subsequently shelled. Nearly the entire of the east side of Upper Sackville Street was destroyed at this time, and this map gives you an indication of the devastation that was wreaked on the um, historic and built fabric of the urban core. Um, here we can see the cleared site in 1925 where the Gresham Hotel once stood. Um, so massive, massive destruction to historic fabrics. Um, and the subsequent rebuilding 
of the newly renamed O'Connell Street um, by the new Irish state, and um, well proved to be quite a dull exercise in neo-Georgian pastiche, rigorously controlled at that time by the city architect Horace T. O'Rourke, who prescribed set building lines, parapet heights, classicising frontages to the street. It brings us to what remains today. Um, there are vestiges of the original buildings which survive in places and you do need to look carefully. You do need to look up. Um, concealed in these instances here, um, behind later additions, refacing, signage, etc. Um, of the original development, only one eight of the 18th century houses survives intact, uh, relatively speaking, standing alone uh, amid amusement arcades and vacant lots. <coughs> the sole survivor, number 42, O'Connell Street, was built about 1752 for Dr. Robert Robinson. He was a state physician um, and a professor of anatomy at Trinity College. Uh, he was a very well-connected player in the city's political and social circles. Richard Castle is again credited with the design of this building, if not the execution, um, which of course was likely carried out by John Enser, who was then involved in other works in this northwest corner of the street. The resulting building is one of considerable pretension and exceptional architectural quality. From the very stark grandeur of its well-proportioned facade, punctuated by these very widely spaced sashed windows, enriched only by this tripartite Doric stone door case at the street level. Internally, the controlled movement drew a sequence of varied spaces, transitions in light and darkness, creates a very dramatic interior, arched, vaulted spaces culminating in the drama of this bowed staircase compartment on the rear of the building. All of this speaks of, its of the skill of its creator and the calibre of this work. The remaining remnants of finely crafted joinery, exquisite stucco schemes, evoke a very powerful sense of the original magnificence within. For although the fabric of the house has undergone various modifications over the centuries, uh, when it served as offices for the Royal Agricultural Society, the um, Farmers Club, Catholic Commercial Club, and later incorporated into the Royal Dublin Hotel. Um, some really, really fine examples of decorative plaster work by the Dublin School survive, again, relatively intact. These have been attributed to the master stuccador, Robert West. Um, and here we can, we can find remains of once vigorous campus leaves scrolling boldly over the wall surface, tendrils of vines and foliage clinging almost for dear life onto what's now exposed uh, ceilings. Enormous birds, some of them are real, some of them are the stucco variety, peer down into these empty spaces. They are now the only occupants of these once magnificent rooms. It's because of this architectural merit. And indeed the work of activists in highlighting the national historic significance of this building, the number 42, has survived and its preservation has been ordered. But in the Georgian Society records, uh, published in 1911, which is our best source of information on the architectural history of this street. It details and illustrates uh, significant elements and interiors of the vast majority of properties on this street. And it all but glosses over number 42. Doesn't deal with it in terms of description at all. So perhaps number 42 was not so exceptional an example after all, when viewed in the larger context of the street. A point that takes nothing from the significance of this building, but rather underscores the quality of what we have lost. The importance of preserving what remains for this and other examples of the city and indeed the country's architectural heritage. Now vacant and more than a little forlorn, with a gaping lot on one side and the remnants of O'Connell Hall 
the theatre built for the Catholic Commercial Club, ensconced in the rear of it. Uh, number 42 is the last vestige of an important Georgian city, um, a development which waits for another building boom to restore its dignity. Thank you. Okay, what I'm going to talk to you about is just about Grange Gorman, um, which is the project uh, myself and Connor who's sitting there in row three in the middle there, looking up. Um, we're looking after. Uh, it's something that we've been working on for about 10 years. At least I've been working on for about 10 years. Uh, others have been on it since the mid-90s. So it's, a, it's a, a particular piece of Dublin City that has been uh, left alone for a while and now we're trying to re-engage it and knit it back into the city. So one of the things that has come up time and time again as part of this development is the, the, the theme or the, the piece about making connections and new connections or, or making reconnections. Um, so that's something that's just going to come up throughout the whole piece. So for those of you who don't know, this is where Grange Gorman is. Um, I only discovered it was a real place myself when I was about 19 or 20. I, it was a sort of a threat for me growing up. I grew up a couple of miles up the way. That's where most of my family are from. It was something that when you were in school, you sort of said, ah, you're going to end up in Grange Gorman. It was a place that was, in your mind, it was something, but as a physical place, it was somewhere where people didn't really know where it was. It was disconnected. So it's about a 73-acre site. Um, this is it here. On the left-hand side is the North Circular Road heading towards Fibsborough. Here is the Prussia Street piece in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll see O'Connell Street, the black dotted piece, the, the Liffey on the top right-hand corner, and O'Connell Street. So it's, it's right in the heart of the city. Um, but yet it's not on everyone's mind map, even now. Um, so I'm going to talk about that. This is the city as it was, or sorry, the site as it was. We think around the late 1940s. There would have been around 2,000 patients on site at this point. Um, the, it was a self-contained piece. If you were in there, you generally never got out. Um, this is what the wall was like when, this is from 10 years ago. You know, you, you, you didn't know what was going on beyond it. Um, there was a, it was the first penitentiary in the British Isles, is, is the building I, I work in now with Connor at the moment. Um, it, was, it was something that was, as you say, disconnected um, and confusing. This was the site as I was working on it here around 2010. Uh, there these random signs left around, random bits of um, its history just left to decay. This is an aerial shot taken of the site around 2006. And picking up on the, the, the building, uh, number 42 um, on O'Connell Street, most of the occupants of this site were pigeons. There was about 100, 200 people using this site, those 73 acres, on any given day. About 100, 130 people with patients, then some HSE staff. So it was a very underutilised asset. Um, the nature of the road network around it and through it um, meant that it was very, very hard to locate. It wasn't on anyone's daily route. Um, on the western boundary you have Prussia Street. It was through over the back of houses. On the eastern boundary you have this great big um, landmass occupied by buses and cars, which is in the ownership of CIE. So it's an impenetrable piece. You might on occasion find yourself coming down Rathdown Road and coming down through here. But it, it, the way the traffic is mapped out, it's not something that you'd use at Rathdown even today. So it's not something you came across accidentally. So it's a, it was a hidden treasure. This is a drawing that was prepared at the start when we were doing our master plan by an architect, Tony Tran, in Santa Monica in California. He was trying to get his hand, head around Dublin. Now, he'd never been there. He didn't come to visit as part of the development of the master plan. But it was kind of, we tried to explain to him over the phone what we thought was the city core. So this is how we saw the city core, where the darker shade was. Uh, we know the canals, the North Circle, the Circle Roads, that's kind of seen as the traditional city piece. And it was sort of interesting when he gave us this drawing back where you could see the fine network of streets and connectivity across and through the city. And then you had, uh, on the kind of the western edge of the city, there's all these institutional land banks that have meant that the western part of the city is never really truly integrated 
into the eastern part, dominated by O'Connell Street, and um, the, the, the Docklands now coming through, and obviously the, the College Green Dame Street piece. So one of the things that we did when we first, in the first meeting, the first design sketch, um, myself, John Rubel, John Mary, uh, James Mary O'Connor and John Mitchell did, when we were figuring out what the hell do we do with this, what's our first hook for the design competition. And we all came to the conclusion pretty quick, well, we had to break through, we had to get into the site, we had to make it permeable, we had to nip it, stitch it into the city. So we, this is one of the drawings we created during the master plan was just showing loads of arrows breaking through, looking at every opportunity to break into the site and bring it back into the, into the city, as they say, um, and make connections. So this is the master plan itself. This is the drawing we finished up with around 2007. Now the master plan itself and the urban redevelopment is driven largely by the relocation of DIT to Grange Gorman. That drives the more than half of all the development space on there. There's about 400,000 square metres mapped out on that. So it's one thing to map out all of those uses and all of those physical spaces onto a, onto a, onto a site. But the other, there's all these other things that we were trying to address. Um, and that came through from the original concepts of what could happen with Grange Gorman, which is driven by things that came from the civil service back around 19, the late 1990s uh, and the early 2000s when there was a working group set up from the Department of Antichok and down. And they were looking at what can you do? You know, there's a lot of ideas about what you do. You know, you could just sell it out in the open market or you could, do, you could uh, put a hospital on it or you could put um, museum spaces or, you know, what would you do with it? And they came up with the idea of uh, relocating DIT because DIT was all this, uh, in lots of little tiny buildings all around town. They were in 39 different locations. Uh, consolidated down into one, that made an awful lot of sense. Um, there was also the institutional healthcare for all the people on site. They were all in pretty much Dickensian facilities. Uh, they needed new facilities. Primary care facilities needed to happen. There was the vision for change for mental health. So all of these kind of policies could all be realised in one location, as well as all these other policies around um, urban planning, urban design, sustainability, etc. So from an architect's point of view, what we wanted to do was use all of this stuff to drive um, new vibrant places. You know, we wanted to change fundamentally the, the, the meaning of the name Grange Gorman from something that was a threat to something that where oh, I'd like to go there. I'd like to go and study there. I'd like to go live there. I'd like to, you know, make it a, a positive place. You know, we, all have to, we have to give us, where we had a lot of debate as to how it would develop over time. Like O'Connell Street, you know, we wanted to see, well, we wanted vibrancy in its architecture. We wanted different architects to come along and produce different buildings, but with a coherent sense of place. We wanted to bring the South City and it, the landscapes beyond back into this. This drawing was really inspired by James. James did this drawing, and it's about the Chinese idea of the borrowed landscape, and bringing all of the city back in. The location of Grange Gorman is uh, fundamental to its success, hopeful success, I, I would say. It's, if you can imagine Dublin as a shallow bowl, and Grange Gorman is literally on the lip of that bowl. So where you are, once you go anywhere above ground level, you've got these fabulous views overlooking the city. So we wanted to make sure that all these buildings captured all of that as best as possible. We also have access to the prevailing winds, southwest prevailing winds, we have to take on board uh, sustainability measures with climate change, and we wanted to have them embedded into the structure and the fabric of the, um, the, the urban forms so that we minimised, uh, no matter what, the, the reliance on mechanical systems. So all of these levels of thought had to go into it. And we ended up with this as our, our, our ultimate vision, um, dominated by as I say, education facilities through the main core, residential facilities for students coming through quads here, and then wrapping through a main street, and then to the north where a lot of the residential facilities are, we'd have a lot of healthcare and a primary school, all co-located beside each other. So everything had its place, and there was a lot of thought went into it. Um, this is one of our first buildings that we did. This is um, a primary care facility we developed there with Taylor Architects. And one of the things we wanted to do was look at how the old and the, the, the historic nature of the site could be respected, restored, but given a new use uh, and a new life um, with uh, new facilities. This is that building there, the laundry building, uh, as it was back in the, the 40s and 50s. It's a building that has a, quite a 
sad history, as with the rest of the site. Um, it was, its last use was industrial therapy, um, which doesn't sound all that attractive, and it wasn't. One of the last things that happened before they closed was, unfortunately, one of the patients committed suicide by tying a lot of ties together and hanging himself from the rafters. So it was just, there's a very, very heavy, um, sad history to it. So when we came in, that's the state of the building there. It was in quite dilapidated form. Um, in that particular bay, um, funnily enough, there was an old rubber plant that had just grown out and taken over the entire um, bay. It was in bits. Um, so we had to take all this and give it a new meaning and give the whole building new life. Um, so we were grateful to be able to do that now with the HSE. They gave us um, a brief to do it. And these are just some shots of the finished product now. It's now open now about a year, uh, working very well. Uh, and, you know, we found some, obviously, some parts of the heritage. We tried to bring that back as best as possible into it. That's something we were trying to do as well with the rest of the site. So what you see there in front of you is uh, the entrance, the only entrance to the site that was being used by, um, by anyone accessing it. Uh, it was, those, those gates were originally the entrances to Santry Domain um, out in Ballymoon. Uh, they're from the 17, uh, 1780s, I think. Um, and the gates, curiously, it was only when we took them down to refurbish them, we realised they're probably the best uh, example in Ireland of a type of forge, iron forge work that was particular to Ireland. So when we got them down, uh, a lot of people were very excited about these, and we had them specifically refurbished. Um, and we again, we, we tried to change the meaning of that entrance. There was a lot of call for kind of memorialisation of the people who were here. And we kind of debated about that, what, what that was. And what we ended up doing was we created this piece here, what we call the cultural garden. Now it's incomplete at the moment because we have to complete some of the buildings here. But the idea was it was a place of reflection, a calm place, given that the rest of the site, ultimately when there's 30,000 people using it, is going to be very active. So this is the first phase of that there now and the building you see is the very first um, new build for DIT on site uh, or sorry I should say TU Dublin now at this stage and that's done by RKD Architects um, and that was their, their first interpretation of the master plan for DIT and has led to um, further interpretations for the round which I'll, I'll show some images of. These are also some other images of the site as it's now as it now stands uh, where we were trying to marry the old characteristics of the site, what was, what was good, and give it a new meaning, a new sense of place. Just where that is here, in this location here, up until around 2013, that was all walled off by Lelandia trees, big bushes, and high fences, about three metres high, and there was just a patch of grass where people who were only uh, resident, they were kept secure in those buildings. Uh, people who were there 20, 30 years, uh, who were in what's called the ICU unit, a high dependency unit, um, and they were only allowed to go around, the only thing they could do was go around in the square all day every day. It was a very, very sad place. So to be able to turn that around and give it a new life and give them also, they were moved into a new facility, a Phoenix Care Centre, which was kind of the equivalent of going from a crappy little hostel to a four-star hotel, where they were going from 20 years stays to best practice internationally of three months longest. So, and the drugs bill that was used for this to the new facility was reduced by a third within a matter of months. So, the impacts <coughs> of the new built environment was to have a new meaning, or a, like a real, sorry, a real uh, impact on the people who use the buildings. So, it's kind of things like this. Now, actually, sadly, this is one of, the, this is one of my favourite views, but uh, that tree fell down there uh, three weeks ago. And I've been told this morning that the balance of the trees have to go, they're, they're rotten. Uh, which is quite unfortunate because it was it was um, quite a special little little spot to be. These are some other spaces that we built. Um, this is a community garden we built down at the bottom of the site, um, in reference to a little community garden that had kind of popped up over time from some of the the, the staff members, um, and we create that a little bit. This is a view, which I told about the borough landscape, looking across the fields and out to the city beyond. And just that wall there now that I mentioned on Grange Gorman Upper. Uh, this is what we've done with it now, sorry, whoops, this is it now. We've taken down that wall and it's now open and accessible to anyone and everyone. So when we opened the site in September 14, it was the first time anyone could freely walk from North Circle Road down through the site and across through here. Subsequently, through agreement with 
the shopping centre just beyond, as you can see through here. Uh, we've got uh, a managed little access through, but you can now go from Prussia Street through for the first time. Um, and just now, in the last uh, two months, uh, we have opened up for the first time, and I, I've yet to see a drawing going back a couple of hundred years to see people coming from here, from Grange Norman Lower, out to Constitution Hill. That's the King's Inns there, you see the top of the page. You can go through there, down through Henrietta Street and out to Bolton Street. So this link from here through to there, that has not been possible for hundreds of years, without, except breaking over walls or what have you. So this opening, albeit very modest, uh, Connor, raise your hand, he, he designed it. Um, but this has been, this is what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to knit this thing in, albeit it's quite modest at the moment. That's it there now, me on a Dublin bike, getting, trying to get through to the back of the clock, tower of the original penitentiary. But these little things now are, are proving very, very popular. I look out on this every day. And it started off in dribs and drabs, but every time I look out now, I'm seeing 10, 12 people coming across here and linking in from Broadstone through to here and out into Grange Gorm and Busher Street beyond. Um, it's, uh, it's nice. It's a nice thing to be able to do. This is that same link now coming through, and on the right-hand side is a building that's currently on site, what we call the E-Squad. It's the School of Social Media and Arts for uh, DIT. Um, and beyond that now, you will eventually have a link through here, through these active spaces. These spaces now are being used by an awful lot of different groups. This was the um, Darkness into Light walk there earlier on, uh, the end of last year. Uh, so it was reflecting back the, the mental health history of the site. It was one of the key places to do it. We walked around the whole site there one, one, early one morning. And this is uh, one of the key links that were, were well, uh, TII and DCC are actually doing the work on it. They're doing the hard yards on it at the moment. This is going to be a block, uh, new plaza entering into Grange Gorman. So those land, those, just beyond that is our lands. And what you see there will be eventually be a, a mixed-use development, science, science and technology park, hopefully, for um, uh, employers who will have links in with TU Dublin and HSE. That is now about to start on site. Currently it's ordered off. We've got the Lewis's already on site there. That work will be complete uh, this time next year. Um, so SIAC construction has started on that now in the next few days. I just want to touch on one other thing that was part of this whole connections thing. It kind of came back to us um, a meeting we had about two years ago. Our board pulled together all the four key stakeholders, or four of the key stakeholders. We had Tony Bryan from the HSE uh, and his team. We had uh, the president from DRT and his team and his governing body. We had uh, Owen Keegan and his team from DCC and we had um, people from the civil service, including the Secretary General for Education. And we got them all together, and we started to discuss what they really saw as being what they wanted to get out of the, the, the site. And the one thing they all said um, was about connect connectivity. So be it the physical connectivity, which uh, led to the uplift of the, 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 the surrounding neighbourhood, um, the connectivity between the people who are using the site and the residents in the area, the connectivity between the organisations themselves, um, so HSC starting on research projects with TU Dublin um, or DCC working in with them and then other parts of the public sector starting to come in and feed in with us. Um, but there's other things as well. We, we went into the public arts piece. We do an awful lot of community engagement um, to try and get people in and um, feel that it's their site. It's not our site. It doesn't belong to TU Dublin. It doesn't belong to HSC. It's everyone's. So, we built this high quality public realm. It's very, very rare we get incidents of vandalism. We do occasionally get some levels of antisocial behaviour, but for where it is on site and what we thought it might be, it's extremely rare. As a matter of fact, I can almost name you the two weeks where it happens every year, it's just as school finishes. Um, and they're looking for something to do. But it's, it's, it's well managed um, by TU Dublin. So it, but one of the key things is getting in there. Local employment is another key piece that we do. We do engage uh, very meaningfully with um, the contractors, and they see a big win out of this. Um, at the moment, uh, we, which is unexpected given the high level of employment at the moment, we have about 25% of new jobs going to local people within the area, um, and that's verifiable. We have uh, DIT and the contractors are working on um, new, um, uh, what's the word, um, apprenticeship programs. Um, and then we have this ABC program is another one where we're trying to get early learning in with uh, True DIT and others. We're working with a lot of other public agents to, 
deal with people with, with, who have learning disabilities or who have a tough time getting into education. Uh, there's obviously public art. We're about to announce, uh, over the next month or two, a major public sculpture. Um, the local clubs and societies, sorry, local clubs, uh, sports clubs and schools all use the pitches. It's all managed by through DIT. Uh, we work heavily uh, with National Transport Authority and DCC to improve the local transport, so Bus Connects is a big thing for us at this moment in time. Um, and then, as I say, connecting all these aspiring, the, the, the communities. So we do have to engage with them to make them aware of things as well as just busy building the physical links. And that's, that's where we are. That's what we've been doing. That's it. Um, okay, uh, so thanks to the organisers for inviting me, um, and so I think it's a really good time to actually reflect on Dublin's redevelopment over the last number of years, and it's not something we do very often really or do very well, so I think the, the last two talks have been very good at kind of explaining and outlining different kind of facets of that. So um, what I'm going to kind of do and what we've been asked to do part of this talk is to kind of look at the juxtaposition between new redevelopment in the city of Dublin and the persistence of vacant spaces. So I want to kind of maybe flip this a little bit in the talk and talk a little bit about the ways in which vacancy plays a role in the development of the city. So we often kind of think about vacancy as something which is, you know, opposed to land which is developed or which is in use. And I want to kind of make the argument that vacancy is always a kind of key characteristic of the development of the city as it goes along. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the last 10 years in Dublin, so particularly the period following the crisis, and try to tell a little bit of a story about vacancy based on research I've been doing, which has looked at how vacant spaces in the city of Dublin have been contested after the crisis. So in general, I kind of outline with this would be that in the period following the crash, when we had a slowdown in property development, there was a lot of possibilities kind of came about through the reuse of vacant space. These were often kind of grassroots possibilities which were used in general to kind of rethink about how we do urbanism, rethink about the development priorities in the city and what we should do with them. But as the property market has come back in Dublin, a lot of those possibilities have diminished, have been lost, and we are in danger again of kind of returning to a very commercial city. And so in a kind of period where maybe we're able to take stock following the crisis, there's lessons to be learned maybe in terms of how we do development and how we might more carefully kind of try to account for and plot in these things. So I want to try to kind of make three kind of key arguments, I suppose, in, in kind of short space of time. So first is to kind of talk a little bit about how in the period following the crisis, vacancy becomes visible, becomes politicised for different sets of actors or different sets of groups. And the different sets of groups look at the possibilities of vacancy, but these possibilities are very different. Secondly, then, I want to kind of argue that we need to maybe move away a little bit from simplified views of vacancy, which just sees as the opposite of space which is being developed or which is in use. And I want to argue that vacancy is a key component of urban property markets, and what the market determines as appropriate use is not necessarily uh, the best outcome for the public in all instances. And thirdly, then, I want to argue that the set of actors involved in planning and development of Dublin significantly changed in the period following the crisis and that urban policy in some ways is maybe struggling to find new ways to adapt to these conditions and is not maybe getting uh, the best outcomes that it, it proposes. So just going to start with this building here, which you're probably all familiar with, which is the ruins of the, the old Anglo-Irish Bank building on the Dublin Docklands. So vacancy was a key component of Ireland's crisis narrative, particularly around ghost estates as a key <coughs> iconic symbol of the property crash. But this discussion also entailed um, debates about the levels of vacancy that persisted in a city like Dublin. So, as Jarrah's talking, it talks about, you know, it, it's quite rare maybe to get a sight of the extent of Grange Gorman. And that vacancy is much more kind of, you know, pocketed around the city in little bits and pieces or parcels. And so, part of the discussion in the period following the crash, when we had kind of a slowdown in development and suddenly, you know, planning offices weren't getting inundated with new planning applications, was that the city of Dublin, despite a period of intensive redevelopment, had large portions of vacant space. Along with that, then, there was also these kind of developments which were sort of new and unfinished or new and empty, and they became a kind of way in which debates were also happened about the extent to which we might 
you know, question the priorities development during the Celtic Tiger period, the extent to which we might kind of seek to kind of find different ways of doing urban development in the city. So the Anglo ruins are one of the things that were identified through that, and one of the proposals at the time put forward was from the architect Pascal Manny, who suggested this um, vision of a vertical park, which he called Trees on the Keys. So essentially to retain the structure of the kind of half-finished building, but implement kind of you know, a greening project in that to open up the space as a public space. And so this was both a way to kind of commemorate the period of the crisis while also kind of critiquing it and to kind of give back some of those sites as a site of public use. So as people are also probably familiar, that, that didn't happen and the building has subsequently been redeveloped as the new headquarters of the Irish Central Bank. And I think this is sort of indicative of some of the trajectory of vacant spaces in the period following the crisis. That there's a lot of possibilities for alternatively thinking about how we might do the city. There's a lot of different kind of proposals put in place which actually question some of the, the development priorities and values around the Celtic Tiger. But a lot of the cases, what we kind of end up with is a similar, very similar kind of redevelopment of a very commercial city. So I want to spend a bit of time talking through kind of like the three kind of issues I talked about. So in the period following the crisis, I suggested there's, there's a whole dirt of development going on and there's a whole range of possibilities for in the first instance, kind of quite grassroots interventions in vacant spaces. So this is things like um, community gardens or urban agriculture. It's things like um, independent spaces given over to cultural institutions that are paying kind of quite cheap rents in these sort of you know empty buildings. It's more formalised kinds of temporary use projects or cultural temporary use projects. And it also entails kind of uh, a bit more recently maybe some kind of contentious activist occupations of vacant properties, partly as a way to highlight homelessness and housing crises. But what all these kinds of interventions had in common, you could, you could argue, was that they used the resource of vacancy uh, for activities not possible within a highly commercial city, and they also tried to lead by example in the sense of using these as experiments in terms of how we might think about the city differently or you know, implement different kinds of development priorities. Policymakers also caught on to these kinds of activities and became interested in them over time. So a number of new policy measures were put in place by the likes of Dublin City Council. So for example, pioneering the vacant land levy as an attempt to kind of combat land, land hoarding and speculation, but also kind of putting in more softer measures to encourage things like temporary uses or cultural uses of vacant spaces. And so while kind of grassroots in various different ways propose alternative futures, the policy agenda in that regard was to kind of use some of these types of bottom-up activities as a way of kick-starting or stimulating new forms of regeneration. And so the assumption under this kind of approach then is that we can kind of combine the sort of interesting, innovative things that are going on in these sites with redevelopment agenda and keep those two things going where you have commercial investment and a lively city. However, at the same time as these kind of things were going on, we also had a quite broad-scale um, agenda to solve the crisis. And in particular, that's kind of financial strategy that comes into the city. So in particular to the creation of NAMA, um, which became a major kind of player in the urban land markets, there was a, a really dramatic kind of shift in terms of land ownership within the city and in terms of who the major players in development were. So, in this kind of sense, financial actors, NAMA and private equity funds on an international level would see vacant space, so somewhere like Docklands, for example, where NAMA had or controlled about 85% of the development land and what became the strategic development zone of Docklands, would have seen vacant spaces or buildings as distressed assets and looked at a strategy then to connect local real estate to global finance as a way of resolving this. But as I'll talk about a little bit, this brings with it its own set of kind of pressures uh, in terms of what types of development are made permissible by that. So the second argument I want to make then is that some of the ways in which we can look then at the trajectory of vacant spaces in the period following the crisis shows us that we maybe don't understand vacancy all that well. You know, there's often quite sort of maybe simplified arguments that are put in place that, you know, we have a certain amount of vacant buildings, you know, we have a certain amount of uses they could be put to, or that we have vacant buildings and we should therefore attract new forms of regeneration to solve those vacancies. So the Dublin City Council Development Plan, for example, suggests that vacancy is a great challenge and opportunity for the city. And they make the argument in this regard that, you know, other cities don't have completely, you know, fitted out urban cores. Vacancy then provides an opportunity for new forms of investment. 
But this simple kind of dichotomy between vacancy uh, sites which are either in use or not in use kind of hides a number of other processes going on. So I want to just suggest kind of two processes. So in one sense, it hides the kind of social functions or uses that vacant spaces might already be put to. So in some senses, vacant is, is not always not in use. It could be just that the use is not maybe what certain actors within the city would see as optimum or appropriate kinds of use. So spaces that are vacant are often maybe used as you know, cultural spaces, used as sort of, you know, um, uh, for different kinds of political meetings or organizations. Sometimes they're used in very informal ways, you know, so like, you know, vacant kind of uh, green areas in the city can be used as informal types of walking spaces or parks, etc. And so what this doesn't get at then is sort of, you know, the ways in which we might see those social uses and the ways in which regeneration might also then challenge those social uses. And are we asking questions about the extent to which these social uses are carried forward into whatever regeneration takes place. Secondly then, it kind of ignores or undermines the way in which vacant spaces are already kind of in economic use of some sort. Even if this economic use is, you know, around land speculation or land hoarding, or an attempt to kind of maybe amass a larger site at a later date, or to speculate on land prices or property prices increasing in the future as a way to kind of make different types of interventions in the urban landscape after that. So I would argue that some that Missing those two points, when we fail to grapple with the real causes of vacancy and its relationship to the types of urban transformation taking place. And thinking a bit more about these aspects can maybe help us have a bit more of a nuanced view about how we can maybe attach policies to these kinds of, um, solving these kinds of issues. So to kind of bring us back then to the kind of period following the crisis, and in particular the kind of the most recent phase, right? So, um, as I suggested, the whole set of development actors involved in uh, urban development in Dublin has shifted quite substantially in the last couple of years. And so this is, you know, brought in, in one sense, a whole new set of international financial actors who are, you know, invested in redeveloping the city. Um, and what this kind of would shows us, I think, maybe, is the extent to which some of the assumptions in urban policy are maybe failing to grapple with this kinds of transformations going on. And just give you a kind of couple of examples of this. So a strategic development zone in Dublin Docklands, for example, aims to be a model of sustainable inner-city regeneration incorporating socially inclusive urban neighbourhoods. But a lot of these kind of priorities are sort of, as we see, the types of development that's taken place so far, maybe failing to achieve these kinds of goals. So two kind of key components of key urban problems at the moment are around the housing crisis. So rents in Dublin have increased by about 65% since 2010, a low point there. And we also have you know, a big crisis around homelessness, uh, housing insecurity, and particularly new forms of family homelessness. So having close to 3,000 children growing up in emergency accommodation, I would see as a clear sign of some failures around policy in regard to housing. There's also a kind of failure of urban policy models to provide some of the vibrant cultural kind of environments that uh, they propose to do. So many of the kind of cultural, grassroots cultural spaces that emerged in the period following the crash have been squeezed out by you know, rising rents as property markets come back up and running. They've been squeezed out by the new types of development that's taking place. So in regard to Smithfield, for example, which was an area which had a lot of cultural spaces in the period following the crisis, a number of these uh, institutions have been you know, moved on or you know, evicted due to rent increases. And Smithfield is an area which is identified as a cultural hub through uh, plans from the City Council. And some of these plans are not going to bear fruit. Similarly with the STZ, um, newspaper reports in the Irish Times today suggested that only 26 social homes have so far been delivered or committed through uh, the almost 1,200 apartments that have been granted planning permission. And media reports from last year suggest that there's only about 1% of the space and new development in that area is given over to cultural uses. So what we have is kind of an intensification of quite commercial interests in that space. And that's an outcome, I would argue, of both the set of new development actors involved, so the type of financing has changed quite substantially in the period following the crisis. Um, there's new kind of international financial actors whose model is often based on kind of maybe a long-term, you know, return on investment over periods of years, but is very much kind of a model driven by kind of investors and shareholders, and therefore more profitable uses are often going to be more attractive. So in this regard then, I would argue that um, there's a clear argument to be made for more intensive, for more um, targeted forms of government intervention. 
So Dublin 2019 developments once again happening at a rapid speed and we rarely reflect on the scale of transformation and what kinds of things might be lost in this process. But we need to do better at this and learn lessons from both vacancy and the kinds of things that happen with that and also learn lessons from some of the mistakes of the Celtic Tiger. So would I view that in the period following the crash, there's a lot of good things that come out of kind of grassroots examples. And some of those things could be held on to in, you know, as development picks up again. We could think more about the ways in which we kind of ensure the sustainability of some of these kinds of activities. So the gap between policy objective and development realities shows the need for more serious and targeted forms of intervention. And so in one sense you could say there's a clear argument for ring-fencing forms of public land, for public kinds of functions, whether it be cultural types of functions, whether it be for affordable housing, these kinds of activities. But there's also opportunities here, I think, to kind of like to learn from some of these mistakes and to stem at least some of the tide of these transformations and reassert the role of the public city. So in particular, given Trinity's new plans for an innovation campus in Docklands, there's an opportunity for the university here to be you know, a leader in this regard or to lead by example and to pioneer new approaches to urban development that make significant and perhaps radical interventions to protect spaces, uh, public spaces for urban life outside of purely commercial logics.